Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 2, and then we're going to go into chapter 2, verse 3, talking specifically about creation, and then Lord willing, next, next week we'll talk about man, and then we'll get into Genesis 3 the following week after that, and talk about sin. So we'll work our way eventually through Genesis 1 through 11. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. These are the words of God. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And on the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created in making it. Let's pray. Our Father and Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of wisdom. 
of your wisdom through Christ our Lord. And amen. You can be seated. Last week, we spent our time dealing with several presuppositions as they relate to the very first verse in the very first book of Holy Scripture. Genesis 1 basically sets the stage for all of history, uh, space, time, and matter included. From the beginning, we are brought into this divine perspective, the triune God at work establishing two main places of residence, two main places for Uh, people to dwell in, you of course have heaven and earth. You have the heavens and the earth. Heaven is first, that is what comes first, and then earth comes second. So God initiates and then the earth receives. God dwells in the heavens and of course he is present everywhere, but man is to dwell on the earth. He is present only there on the earth. The heavenly hosts, the angels, they, we assume, based on other texts here, that they were brought forth in that moment and the very beginning because according to Job 38, if you you can look up Job 38 later, verses 4 through 7, apparently the heavenly hosts were present at creation and rejoiced with God. So there's a lot of talk about and theorizing about when the angels came around, but presumably according to Job, that would be that moment. As Augustine reminds us, God didn't create the world in time, as if it had some pre-existing form, but rather God made it together with time. God made it with time. Space, time, and matter came in at one particular moment. The creator God, we also know, is the sustainer God. Not only is he creator, he is the sustainer. God's marvelous creation goes hand in hand with God's sovereign providence. You can't divorce creation and, and providence. The two things go hand in hand. He makes it, He sustains it. He creates it, and he guides and directs it. Everything, every molecule, every uh, everything on the periodic table, every moment, all of it is his. So he creates and he upholds. He speaks and he directs. He God acts, and then the creation responds. I made mention last week uh, that Genesis 1:1, as a header to the creation story, explains the establishment of the kingdom of God wherein all things are subjected to him. So when we think of the kingdom of God, uh, we ought to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That is when the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God over the entire world, over the universe, that's when it began. And everything thus was subjected to him. So man, we learn, is to be a king. Man was created to be a king and uh, He was essentially created to direct everything back to God for his glory. And having having, uh, taken pleasure in his creative motive, God desired to share his glory with the creation. Uh, That that is not something any other God can can teach. Not not, uh, Islam, um, not, not Mormonism, not any of the other Christian cults, any offshoots. None of them can claim this. Um, God desired, surely out of his own grace, to share his glory. He didn't have to. No one strong-armed him into doing it. So the created order, with all of its laws, with its beauty, with its glory, is to be a mirror. It's to be a mirror reflecting God's nature, God's character, God's purposes. And this morning we're going to look closer at the Genesis the the creation story here in Genesis 1, which lays out for us this ineffable glory. Genesis 1, keep this in mind, I'm going to remind you this later, but Genesis 1 highlights for us that man is the purpose of creation. Man is the purpose of creation. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll see Genesis 2, whereas uh, Genesis 2 deals with man as the beginning of history. So Genesis 2 sort of re recapitulates Genesis 1, but tells it a little bit from a different angle. Uh, And we know from Genesis 1, man is the purpose of creation. Everything's building to this moment. Man is the purpose. And then you go to Genesis 2, and we learn more about Eden and the garden, and we'll talk about that. Um, But we learn from there that that man, uh, all of that is the beginning of history. So right now, we don't know Adam and Eve. We just know that God made him man in his image. We just kind of have a generalized statement And that's because man is the crescendo. Man is the zenith of God's creative hand. But next week, we'll see that that's when history begins. 
So let's kind of work through our text here. I'm not going to read it all again, but we're going to work through it, so you may want to follow along. Verse 2 is a transitional postscript. So verse 1 is the header. Uh, Verse 2 is what we can call a transitional postscript, uh, and it lines up with Genesis 1-1, of course. Um, I'm going to summarize verse 2 for you. This is from Cornelius Vonk, a Dutch um, Reformed pastor. Uh, I think he passed away in the 90s. But a way of summarizing it might be like this. This is verse 2. Now that land, at first indeed, was desolate and empty. Uh, Two great Hebrew words, tohu, bohu. (laughs) Sounds like a rap song or something. Uh, Formless and void, tohu, bohu. Uh, That land was desolate and it was empty. Also, there was indeed darkness above the flood. But fear not, for the Spirit of God rose up high and mighty above the water. A great way to summarize verse 2. Now, in order for man to live on earth, for the glory of God upon the earth, the land needed to be a certain way. It needed to be habitable. It needed to be a place where man could exercise his dominion task. There, there wasn't yet here at the very beginning a division between the land and the water, the light and the darkness. In order to highlight the intention of God, the Holy Spirit, present at creation, was sent to examine and supervise the work. The Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, He is there to supervise and uh, examine the work. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, ever-present and as always. The Father issues the, the will, and the Son then speaks as the Word of God, the Logos of God, um, the speech of God. He speaks, and then you have the Holy Spirit who carries along that message and applies it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right here in the first two verses. Now, the lesson we learn here is this. The creation is to be heavenized. Creation is supposed to be heavenized. That program never changed. That's still our program today. Creation is to be heavenized. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But even from the very beginning, creation is to be heavenized. The earth is to reflect heaven. The earth is supposed to reflect heaven from emptiness to fulfillment, from barrenness to fruitfulness, from darkness to light. The Spirit's hovering is the Spirit's proactive interest in creating new life. That is what the Holy Spirit does. He creates new life. He has a proactive interest in creating new life. We'll talk more later about how that works with us. So he hovers because he is the vehicle of God's powerful word. The Holy Spirit carries the word that comes from the mouth of Jesus, that comes from the the Father's sovereign plan. The Spirit carries it forth. Now, note here that there are no rivals. There are no primordial monsters of of chaos and anarchy that God had to somehow overcome. There's no dualistic problem to overcome. A lot of the Greek gods, there was always infighting and different gods were fighting and and different aspects of creation were divinized. And uh, we don't have any of that here. We just have God and his powerful word. We have nothing but the divine perfection of the triune God at work. He is working here. Also note that God is perfectly capable of working under the cover and secrecy of darkness. No light has been created yet. You just, you have water, uh, watery blob, Holy Spirit actively uh, hovering over the waters, um, but, but God is working, and he is able to do so under the cover and secrecy of darkness. I want you to listen to Psalm 139, verse 12. Psalm 139, verse 12 explains it this way. Even the darkness is not too dark for you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So have that imagery in your mind here. God is at work. There is not, light has not yet been created. However, God is light, according to 1 John 3, 5, or 1, 5. Um, God is light, which means darkness itself only exists because he wills it to exist. Um, darkness is simply the absence of light. Now, if God is light, then we can conclude that if God were to conceal that light, then darkness then has this ability to exist. Now, darkness, of course, we know in the Bible would later come to be associated with sin and evil. 
In verses 3, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, we have the six days of creation. We have six days of creation. Uh, and, and kids, how many, how many days did God create everything? Six. Good. The answer is six, not seven. All right. It's somewhat of a trick question, but you got it right. I expect nothing less from Cross and Crown kids. The six days of creation. And then we have a seventh day, and it's a final day, and that's God's Sabbath rest. Now, these are the ten words of creation. The, the Ten Commandments in, in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy as well are considered the ten words, the ten words, the ten law words of God. Well, here in creation, we have ten words of creation. God speaks ten things and orders it and commands it. And these are the ten words of creation, the making of a place for man to dwell as God's image and likeness. So to summarize, we're just going to go through each of the days fairly quickly. Um, day one, that's verses three through five. That's the establishment of light. What did God create on day one? Light. Darkness to light, nothing to something. Um, after sin enters into the world, we know that history moves from wrath to grace. It moves from unrighteousness to holiness. It moves from darkness to light again. And day one was the separation of light and darkness. It was done before, by the way, the luminaries of the sun, moon, and stars were created. And it was done by God's miraculous power. A note here, we do not need to placate to the evolutionary worldview by being embarrassed about how light appeared before the sun. Oh, geez, we have no answer for that. How could this is embarrassing? That's what the evolutionary mind mind does. And we don't have to. That's nonsense. We know that God is light. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. And it's no problem to emanate and radiate his light and his being into a created order with his glory light, we might call. So it's not an issue to say, well, God created light and darkness on day one, but the sun didn't come around till later on day four. What's the deal? Well, that's not a problem at all. We shouldn't be embarrassed. Now, note the phrase at the end of verse five. This is a phrase that gets repeated. And there was evening and there was morning one day. So even from Genesis, the day starts when? The evening. So from the evening, when darkness begins, all the way until the morning, uh, you have, or actually not till the morning, but you also have throughout the rest of the day, evening and morning kind of summarizing darkness and light. So one day happens there. And we, we see that the darkness sets us up for another work of God for another day. Now the day here, as, as has been, it's pointed out by scholars, um, men like Ken Ham and others, Jason, Dr. Jason Lyle, uh, they've done a, a, an incredible work with the Answers in Genesis team on, on all of this. So it's, it's been pointed out several times, but the Hebrew word for day here is yom, Y-O-M, to put it in English letters, yom, and it can simply mean a long time. It, it can mean that, but given the context, it can also mean a literal 24-hour period of time, and that's what it means here. So the, the earth and, and general conservative Christian circles, evangelical circles, uh, we get picked on by this, but the earth is probably 6,000 years old. Um, if, you, if you date it by scripture, you're looking at the year 4004 BC when God brought everything into existence. Um, and there's, again, no need to shy away from defending that from people who will tell you otherwise. Uh, that's just, that's, there's nothing shy, nothing embarrassing about that. So the earth, 6,000 years old, it was made in six actual 24-hour days. So never apologize for that. Now, in verses 6 through 8, we have day 2. Day 2 is the establishment of the expanse, or firmament, or sky heaven, as I like to call it, the sky heaven. The blue sky atmosphere is separated from the waters below. And apparently, before the flood, there was water above the firmament expanse um, as well. And many scholars believe that, um, it, with regard to your particular cosmological presuppositions, <laughs> many believe that when the flood took place, uh, it, it never rained until the flood, but that part of the flooding was God somehow emptying the skies above with water above this firmament expanse. And thus it kind of just, the deluge happened and everything went in. We'll talk some about that in the flood passage. But the sky is put in place as an image of heaven. 
so when we think of, when you look outside and see the blue sky, uh, or at nighttime and you see the stars, that, that expanse is put there as an image of heaven. It's couched within the space of the earth. So you have earth here, you have this firmament sky heaven here, and then you have the heavens where God dwells. And that's a reflection where you're moving from light down to the darkness of the earth. So you're bringing light from the heavens to the earth. Um, the first and tallest heaven is the dwelling place of God and the heavenly host. The second heaven is the sky heaven firmament. So below this is the water. So the earth is full of water and that'll be soon distinguished from the land which happens next. Day three. Verses 9 through 13 tell us about day three. Day three is the establishment and distinction between the dry land and the watery seas. Also on day three was the beginning of vegetation, plants, seeds, and fruit trees. And those were reproducing after their kinds. The land's vegetation was for the animals and humans who would come later on day six. So presumably, you, again, recommend answers in Genesis, um, presumably some sort of Pangaea-like land was, was in fact there that was broken up by the flood, um, but that was God separating the waters on the earth from the land of the earth. Again, God's moving it from sort of like a vague notion to reality. He's moving it from something that is empty, that needs to be filled and habitable, uh, habitable for, for man, and then he's going to move it into uh, this glory of man on day six. Now, in verses 14 through 19, we have day four. Now, day four, uh, I don't have a chalkboard, but day one, two, three, I'm going to do it backwards so you can see. Day one, two, and three is connected to day four, five, and six. So day one goes with day four, day two goes with five, day three goes with day six. So they, there's, you can see that pattern um, here, day four is with day one. Day four has the luminaries in the sky heaven. We have the creation of the sun. The sun is the greater light. It governs the day. And the moon, considered the lesser light, governs the night. That's in verse 16. The reason for putting them in place is to give light to the earth. That's what we're told in verse 15. And in verse 14, it's there to govern time and seasons and years of man. So placed in the firmament expanse, Light and darkness. Now, light and darkness conceptually proceeds from the mind of God, but now we have its governing function in the created order proceeding from the sun, moon, and stars. So light and darkness comes from God who is light, sort of in a vague sense, and then now we have, well, actually, there's the sun and the moon and the stars, and those luminaries are put there to reflect heaven, to reflect the light of heaven. So, and, and by the way, we'll come back to this, but man does not escape this law of creation or nature. Um, when you use the word nature today, you have humanists who like to separate it from creation. So it's fine to say nature uh, connected to the word natural, but what we mean by nature is creation. Nature as intended by God. So we have to make sure that we connect those dots. Verses 20 through 23 deals with day five. So remember, day one goes with day four. Day two goes here with day five the filling of the sky heaven with birds and the filling of the waters with sea monsters and creatures, and they too are reproducing after their kind. So on day two, you had the establishment of land um, and, and the waters, and, or the, actually the waters in the, in, the, in the sky. Day five fills the sky and fills the water. Now day six corresponds to day three. In, in, in day three, remember, God separated the land and the waters. Well, now, on day six, God fills the land with animals, uh, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, and they also reproduce after their kind as well. That's verses 24 through 25. Now, I'm going to deal more specifically with the animals when we get to the flood and having a theology of animals. It won't be the entire message, but I'm going to speak to that particular thing but I want to just point out here the fact, uh, I enjoy fun facts, so here's a fun fact, kiddos, listen carefully. Did you know that a flamingo's head has to be upside down when it eats? Did you know that only half a dolphin's brain sleeps at a time? Boy, how productive could we be if we could just put one half to bed? <laughs> um, did you know that octopuses have three hearts? Interesting fact. And frogs, I didn't know this, um, I didn't know the, to the extent of it. I knew they had great 
eye, eye visual perception, but frogs have 360 degree visual range. Interesting, interesting. So you talk about creativity here. When God brings animals and birds and, and, and the fish of the sea and all these creatures into existence, uh, it's amazing the things they do. Certainly some of them are very scary. I particularly am not fond of spiders and snakes. Uh, I don't find them cute at all. They are worthy of the death penalty in my view. Um, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, God's creativity is amazing in what he has done with creation. So God's love, care, and purpose for the animals is actually tied up with the created order, and it's tied up with man's task in the world as well. And I do believe that God's restorative efforts in history will include animals and man living in perfect harmony once again when the new heavens and new earth are consummated. So I do, there is a future for animals. At any rate, the crown of God's creation is found in verses 26 through 31. In verses 26 through 31, it's here where we have the sixth day finalized. So apparently sometime during the beginning of the sixth day, God made the animals for the land. But then later on, we have something else happen. And up until this point, everything in creation God has made is good. He, he's evaluated it. It's good. He, he makes it and then he judges it. And God always judges correctly. So of course, he's not going to come along and say, yeah, I, I made the rhinoceros look weird. I shouldn't have done that. No, he judges his creation good. It is good. So everything has been good up until this point. And in taking counsel with himself, God created man in his own image and likeness. This is the hallelujah moment. This is the exciting, this is where everything has been pointing to, man, the purpose of creation. And again, we're going to deal with this more in detail next week. But from this, we can see that man, unlike everything else that was created, is to uniquely reflect God as an image bearer. And you can also say as a light bearer. Man is to be a light bearer in a world of darkness. He's to work and keep, defend and dress all of these concepts. And they are, in verse 28, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. That's the dominion mandate. We'll go into that next week. So all of creation was put in place with order and structure. There's order and structure to it, and it's in total adherence to God's law, so things function the way they do because God ordered it that way. God structured it that way. That the flamingo's head has to be upside down to eat. And God, maybe he thought that was funny and we should laugh at it too. But it, it has to do that because God said for it to do that. And all of it was put in with order and structure for the express purpose for preparing man for the project of heavenizing the earth. All of these things were put in place so that man would then heavenize the earth. And God didn't create the world to be empty and lacking, but to be filled and abundant. You can see Isaiah, you should look this up later, Isaiah 45, 18. Isaiah 45, 18. The earth is to be filled. It's not to be lacking. There's supposed to be eschatological abundance. There is supposed to be um, uh, provisions made for all of God's creation. And, the, and these provisions here early on were set in place. You had plants and seeds uh, and fruit trees for food, verse 29. You had animals to enjoy and put to use in the field for growth. And, and man, the capstone king, man is there to manage the affairs on behalf of God as a steward. Adam and Eve put there, this is the creation. You are here to enjoy it, to sanctify it, to bless it, to work it, to keep it, to develop it to take things that aren't in, in existence and, and figure out the periodic table, figure out how chemical reactions work, figure out how to build and how to create. That is the dominion mandate. So it was, the creation order was meant to be enjoyed. It was meant to be explored. It was meant to be put to use. And creation, by the way, is, is, is only considered very good after God made man. After God made Adam his son... It was very good then. And we should pay attention to that. There's a reason that that is there. Everything belonged to God here. Everything belonged to God. Um, man had no natural rights. He only had rights that were given by God. So again, if you mean 
today we talk about, I have, the, I have a natural right. I have a right to life, liberty, and, and property, and prosperity. And, well, what do you mean by a natural, natural right? That didn't just pop out of the sky. God gave you those rights. So everything's connected to him. So, uh, and I'm going to emphasize this now. We're going to deal with it next week. But Adam's natural, I put that in air quotes, natural experience of God's self-revelation was entirely special. In other words, Adam, Adam knew God in complete knowledge, in complete epistemological harmony. He just knew God. God walked with him. God was his creator. He knew him. There, there was no natural revelation divorced from God's special or specific revelation. So in the garden, there was simply divine, divine fellowship. God's experience, or Adam's experience of God and Adam's experience of creation were never really distinguished in any meaningful way. They were both one and the same. So the days here, the days move us from creation to glorification, from empty to filling, from establishment to then productive interaction. God, is to, God put Adam to, to work it. Three days of establishment versus uh, day one, two, and three. Three days of establishment. You have three days of adornment. Days four, five, and six. God makes, and then he adores it. <laughs> he, 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 puts, um, he puts things in it so that that adornment can then reflect his creative hand. Now yet, think of this and go to chapter two. In chapter two, we have verses one through three. And this is sort of like an epilogue here. I don't, whoever divided the chapter numbers uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, I don't think they did a great job. They should have left that back with chapter 1, but here we are. Verses 1 through 3 is an epilogue. The creation is finished. Everything's good. Man's here. Everything is very good now. And all that was left for God was to seize work and sanctify the seventh day. And he set a pattern in place for man. The kingdom was set in place. The vicegerent was there, put, put in place. The dominion charter was issued, right? Got the, um, the, Adam was given his instructions. And the world was a temple which God had chosen to inhabit and bless with his presence and favor. favor it's, it's here. Now God rests. The pattern of rest, beginning with God, and given, to, given as a gift to man, was a promise of faithfulness from God. If you never slow down in your, in your life and take that Sabbath rest, you are in high-handed rebellion against God. You are taking the gift and saying, well, this is my work to do. I can handle it. The pattern is set in creation. Man was to rule in God's name. Man was to rest in God's name. Rushdoony said it this way. I think he had a, this is a great quote. He said this, The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. Having received grace and law from God, the covenant people surrender themselves to him, not only in worship, but in the giving of time to God. To yield 52 days in the year on a regular weekly basis is a covenant act. And acknowledging that God is, and acknowledging to God that it is not our power over time, but His power on which we depend. We cannot master time and history apart from God. Therefore, by removing ourselves from time, by resting one day in seven, we acknowledge that the determination of all things belongs to God. The seventh day is sanctified for that reason. And we know from Hebrews that it is Christ who is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And we rest in him. Now, how shall we then live? The doctrine of creation is an offense. It's an offense to modern man because science has been elevated to the supreme authoritative position. You, know, you have your God. You believe in your God. Well, we believe in science. I don't like that phrase. Science is reified and then deified as though science were a thing. You know, where could I talk to science? Where might I find it at the grocery store? It's reified and then it's deified. And then once you have established your own God, you must do what that God commands. When Darwin introduced the concept of evolution and natural selection, 
what drove the social revolution of the 19th century was the fact that Darwin claimed to see an undesigned order in nature. Note that phrase. Darwin saw an undesigned order. Does that make any sense? Is there order in creation? We say absolutely, yes, it's, there is order. We can empirically observe it. We, see, we know when the, the leaves fall off the tree. We know that they're coming back eventually. We know that things happen a certain way. We, we just know that from observation. But we also know it from God's word. But is there order? Yes. If that is true, then there is purpose. There is purpose. If there is order in the universe, then there is significance. If there is significance, there is personalism, what we talked about last week. You don't get significance if, all, if our ancestors just crawled up out of the pond and grew legs. There's no significance there. Follow that train of thought. If there is order, then there is purpose. If there is purpose, there is significance to it. If there is significance, there is personalism to it. We can trace it all the way back to God and his creative hand. Now, in our day, we, we, we run into this great crisis of man's self-interpretation. Everybody today wants to interpret themselves, right? We, we're even messing with pronouns. We're, we're messing with everything at this point. Nothing is off limits. Man is trying to interpret himself, but he, he doesn't know how. Wanting significance, wanting meaning, wanting purpose, but wanting it without God and his law. And that is the trouble of our culture today. When God, the one true God, is rejected, man finds himself in that existential crisis. If the true good and beautiful exists, it must be granted to us. You, simply, you cannot simply make it up as you go. But the crisis doesn't stop there. Man does try to make it up as he goes, hence the problem. And when you try to tell people that this progressive train has no brakes and it's flying off the side of the cliff, who are you to judge? Man, today, you all need to know this and feel the weight of it. We are living in the midst of a massive, unprecedented social revolution. So large scale in dealing with so many things, human sexuality, everything, all of it dating back to Darwin and and all of these evolutionary ideas, man is in a crisis today. What an opportunity for the gospel. Now, there is no reason to apologize for Genesis 1 and 2. We don't need to throw billions of years into the scheme to satisfy the apostate. We don't need to define day as anything other than the normative usage of it here. Um, whenever you interpret the Bible, when you look at Hebrew and Greek words, Typically, they, there is some fluidity to their meaning, but usually the context determines what it means. And here, the word day is connected with, with evening and morning. So we can conclude, yes, yom means 24-hour days. So we don't need billions of years. We don't need millions of years. We don't need to invent some sort of theistic evolution where we can have both God and Darwin. That's a major popular position today. Well, we can have both. Why not both? You know, God... God actually is sovereign over evolution. And so, yeah, our ancestors were apes, but that's because God set it up that way. We, we simply, we don't need to go that route. We simply need to defend the created order as it really is and as the Bible truly explains. Be willing to have courage. Be willing to defend it. And we use Christian presuppositions because only Christian presuppositions makes it all make sense. Learning to understand the created order is a tremendous blessing. Science and faith are not opposites, but you should know that faith will inform every aspect of man's interpretation of the world, and thus it will inform his view of the sciences. Um, some of you kiddos, you, you just really enjoy science. You like looking at animals and, and reptiles and some of the birds, and you, like, you enjoy those things, and that is wonderful. But never forget that you're looking at it with a pair of glasses on. And that glass, those glasses better be the Word of God. It better be the lens of Scripture. Because you can't get away from that. You can have two scientists, one a Christian, 
one not a Christian, standing at the edge in the south ridge, the, the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and they're looking over the edge, and, and we had this experience when we were there years ago. The one lady is like, how many billions of years did it take? Yeah, it, took, it took like a couple months, actually, because <laughs> the flood made this. But you can look at two people with eyes looking at the same thing and coming to drastically different conclusions. And the reason they are is because of their presuppositions. One holds to the supremacy of Christ as revealed in his word. One holds to the supremacy of Darwin as revealed in the origin of species. There is a difference there. So we, we, we have a world to explore. We should interpret the world. We, we should love it and encourage it. We want scientists. We want scientists that fear God. That's what we need. Now, we have a world to explore and develop. There are 15 different aspects of life, um, ranging from you know, the numerical, the mathematic, to the physical, uh, to moving out of that to the logical, the historical. Um, you even have the ethical aspect of life. Where, where for the Christian, everything um, comes back to love and God is love. You also have the pistical or the faith aspect of life. And all of these aspects, everybody participates in. We all participate in them. And in each of these aspects, we can, through study and the deployment of biblical presuppositions, discover and enjoy God's beautiful creation. We, we find that in, in creation or nature, there is structure and there is order. There is consistency and there is constancy. We, we learn that God has a law for creation. And we can set our minds to learn more and more about created reality so that we can learn more and more how to obey what it is God sets forth in the scriptures. So by all means, go and study the trees. Study the animals. Enjoy them. They're, they're here for our enjoyment. But we need to know that the end of that is obedience to God. And we need to remember that creation isn't autonomous. This is, <laughs> this is fallen on hard times, even in evangelicalism today. Creation isn't autonomous. Unity in creation is what we call analogical. And it's analogical because of the triune God, meaning the unity in creation reflects the unity in God. We talked a little bit about that last week. The diversity of creation reflects the diversity in God, meaning the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, creation reflects the coherence of the Trinity, of the three persons. And when we say that creation is an analog, we mean that it's a reflection. It's a reflection of the inter, inner constitution of the triune Godhead. Now, if you, dear Christian, if you believe that God spoke the world into existence, but then he left the created order to its own devices then you worship a false god. We call it deism. If you believe, yeah, God spoke everything to existence, but then he took a uh, beach vacation, he's gone. And everything else just functions on its own. If you believe that, you're worshiping a false god. Creation isn't autonomous. The rainfall we're hearing right now is because God willed it. And he knows exactly how many raindrops are hitting at every moment across the world. It's not autonomous. It obeys the word of God. The wind blows because God makes it blow. The cat hunts the mouse because God made it to do that. Males and females come together in marriage and typically have children because God created it to happen this way. Giraffes, for example. Giraffes fight by throwing and swinging their necks around at each other. A sight to behold, I might add. If you've not watched that, you need to watch it. Find a video, parents, show your kids. When giraffes fight, it's the wow. They throw their necks around at each other and uh, try to smack each other with the horn things on the back of their heads, whatever that's called. You, you would know, I don't know. But that happens because God finds it pleasurable. He thinks it's a good thing for giraffes to have ginormous necks. It's amazing. He, he, and I think he laughs and he finds it funny and humorous and glorious. So in creation, there's uniformity. There's durability to it. There's integrality. There's predictability of creation. And it's all because God has a law for his creation. Now, the world wants you to believe that we're just here and that there's no order or structure to creation. And if there is, it just happens to be there by chance. And frankly, it might just be an illusion. 
I talked to many uh, students um, who would prefer to just believe that they live in the matrix. But that's what the world wants you to believe. The world wants you to evolve from apes. That way, the state can treat you like an ape. But creation speaks loudly. Creation speaks loudly. The heavens tell of the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. The rivers clap their hands and, and the mountains sing for joy, Psalm 98, verse 8. The mountains and the hills break forth in shouts of joy. Even the trees clap their hands too, Isaiah 55, verse 12. In other words, the creation reflects God's glory, functioning in complete obedience to God's law word. And though inanimate objects of creation, the trees, apparently the trees have the ability to break out in song, clap their hands, and do it with joy and gladness. Creation serves God's orders. It cannot help but do so. That's the world you live in, friends. That is the world you live in. That's the creation you experience day in and day out. But then there is man. Remember, Genesis 1 highlights for us that man is the purpose of creation. Genesis 2 deals with man as the beginning of history. The purpose of creation is, is the connection that it has with man. People want you to live in a, a purposeless universe. There's no meaning other than whatever you want it to be. You, when you do that, you divorce it from the purpose of creation. The purpose of God's creative hand is connected to man. It's connected to man. Man is to be here to enjoy and develop God's world, um, but man's ethics determine the outcome of creation. So God's law for creation is there in place as a guardrail for us. Listen to what Romans 1.20 declares. For since, the, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, unbelievers, are without excuse. God's law for creation leaves men without excuse, literally in Greek, without a defense. You're, you're, you don't go to heaven someday and stand before the judgment seat of God and say, I, I have a defense here, and I am pleading this, that, and the other. My, my counsel has advised me of this, and God says, you, don't have, you have no defense. You don't have counsel. There's no attorney for you. You can't defend yourself. Why? Because you were made in God's world, and you knew. You know that God exists. You suppress it in unrighteousness. So they're defenseless before the bar of heaven. Thus, man does not and cannot escape this law of nature, which is given by the hand of God. When man's ethical deviation comes into the creation, the world is disturbed, right? Things go wrong. When sin enters in, things go wrong in creation. The thorns, we'll get to this in two weeks, the thorns of creation are there to mediate God's curse of man. And the connection here is, Men are thorns when they rebel. That's why Jesus wears a crown of thorns. He is the second Adam, taking on the curse of man. But this too comes from the hand of God. So man, man is to live in harmony with creation, but only to the degree that he is ethically conformed to God. When this breaks down, when sin enters in, creation breaks down. Man isn't a product of his environment. He is a product of God's love, which is couched within an environment. And when you rebel against God, things happen. What happens? People die. And we await a resurrection, but that's one of the consequences of sin. As I wrap up, I want you to consider the truth of Ephesians 2.10. You can go there if you like. Ephesians 2.10, which reads this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2, verse 10. We're his workmanship. That Greek word actually is where we get the word poetry. We are his artwork. God has fashioned us, made us, created us. We are the result of the great artist putting something in place. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. The same God 
And children, I want you to get this. Don't miss this. The same God who spoke all of creation into existence 6,000 years ago is the same God who speaks today, who speaks and forms new hearts into his people. In Christ, we are a new creation, the Bible says. In Christ, we are brought forth into a new status, into a new covenant. In Christ, we are created for good works, good works that God has prepared beforehand. Before we ever existed, before any of you kiddos were ever here, God had created you for a specific task. And he's called you to that task, and your job is to follow suit. You're to obey him and be blessed by him. And he has promises for you when you are uh, obeying his covenant word. We, we are created to walk in these works that God has made. Creation and providence doesn't just relate to the world, and it does relate to the world, but it relates to your heart, the center of your being. In the gospel, Jesus, by, ver- by the Spirit's work, rips out your dead heart and puts a new one there. He takes out the sinful heart and puts a new one there. He takes the heart of stone out, he yanks it out, he puts, he, he puts something there out of nothing, a new heart that beats for the glory of God. I think I might have mentioned this last week, but when David confesses his sin in Psalm 90, 51, yeah, Psalm 51, he, he asks God to create in him a new heart. The word create, bara, means out of nothing. It's the same Hebrew word, the verb there in Genesis 1. He's asking for a new heart out of nothing. He spoke the world into existence by the power of his word, and he spoke you into existence as well. And once here, you needed his grace because you, like me, had sinned against him. We stomped on his law for creation. We, we rebelled against it. We rebelled against his, his commands. And so we needed a new heart. And in the gospel, friends, he gave it to us. And it, is, it was no more easier for God to speak all things into existence than it was for him to implant within you a regenerated heart. The spirit who hovered over the waters of creation is the same spirit who hovers over the heart, making it new. Only when this happens can an empty heart, a broken heart, a deceived heart be filled with righteousness. Only when the spirit comes can the dead heart be raised to new life. The gospel is thus entirely foundational to living in God's world and being, being the people God has called us to be in God's world. The gospel is foundational. What could be more consequential than understanding our origins? What could be more consequential than finding out where, where we came from, how we're here in this world, how the world is developed? The, the only thing more consequential is coming to Christ in worship and service. That's the only other thing. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory and the praise today. We give it to you every day, but we especially give it to you now because we have looked to your word and we have seen so much. We have seen your creativity, your providential hand. We have have seen your glory and your light shown in the world. We thank you that you have established us as your people. We thank you that you have given us hearts to believe, hearts to confess, and, 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 and bodies to, to exist in this world in obedience to you. We ask now as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we sing and give you glory and partake, may you be blessed forevermore. And may you, the God who is from everlasting, establish us, establish the work of your hands. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.